Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for that incredible gift, sending your Son. Jesus, thank you for taking on human flesh, coming all that holy night. But because of your coming to earth, we can become the children of God, and therefore it's so much more than just a night. It is all of eternity with you. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for the power of your word. Now, would you please guide us and teach us from it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you all had an amazing Christmas as you celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I I will just say this. Christmas, sometimes it comes with certain challenges. For example, I accidentally dropped a large copy of the Christmas Carol on my foot. It hurt like the Dickens. Yeah, it doesn't get any better from here, okay? I'm just saying. But as we, as we finish 2023, and now we look to the new year ahead, I think that today's text, we're just picking right back up where we left off two weeks ago. I think that today's text, though, from Mark chapter 3, it seems especially relevant this time of year. If, if you remember from two weeks ago, we saw that the Pharisees, and I think it was primarily out of jealousy, and then also, as we talked about, their misconceived ideas about what was right and what was wrong. Because of all of that, they hated Jesus and they had it out for him. And so they began, where we left off two weeks ago, they began devising a scheme to destroy him, which, of course, we know ultimately led to his crucifixion a few years later. But I love, I love Jesus so much. What he does here, he was completely undeterred by what the Pharisees or opposition, even though they made alliances with the Herodians, Jesus didn't care. He continued to minister to the people. That is why he was there. Primarily, if you remember, we've talked about this through Mark so far, his primary uh, focus was preaching the gospel. But along with that, and I would say because of his compassion and his love, It involved healing people. It involved dealing with the problems in their lives. And because Jesus healed many people, and we've already talked about some of that uh, through Mark, and we'll see more of it in the months ahead, but because he healed many people, people from all over came to him. And And it resulted in what I would say some very interesting situations that we see here. So I hope you're with me in, in Mark chapter 3. And I have three, three points from this passage this morning. And first one is the pressing crowd of people. Mark chapter 3, just follow along as I read verses 7 through 10, please. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Word of Jesus as the great miracle worker had certainly spread, and it had spread far and it had spread wide. And so people, as we see here, people came. 
lots and lots and lots of people came. In fact, Mark, in just those verses we read, you might have noticed that twice he uses this descriptor of them as a great crowd. This was not just some little, a few people standing by the wayside. This was a lot of people. And it wasn't just people from Galilee. So I hope you can see this on this map, and I am so praying that my, <laughs> my iPad thing here works today. So it says, first of all, that they were from Galilee. Now, we, we know Jesus here. I'm going to see if I can underline that. Oh, that's just what it did last time I did. So, oh, I have this really cool map that you guys are not going to be able to see. What's the good of seeing if I can't draw? Oh, my Atlanta. Okay, so. <laughs> so here we are. We've taken a few, we've regressed a few years, haven't we? So up here, Sea of Galilee, Capernaum's right there on the northwest edge of that sea. This area here is Galilee. It says also that they came from Judea and Jerusalem. Judea, of course, is this area here. I so want to draw a circle on this thing. I'll get over it. Okay, so Jerusalem is here, Judea. So this whole region here. It also says so that it came from Idumea, which is even south of Judea down here. This distance, I'm away from my notes, so this is dangerous, but that distance, I believe, is 120 miles. Okay, so in today's world, that'd be two hours drive, right? Back then, minimum seven to eight days. And that's for healthy people. From what we just read, the majority of people were not healthy, right? So or at least a lot traveling were not. So who knows how long it would have taken. It also says that they came from the other side of the, the Jordan rivers here, this area east of the Jordan. It's called Transjordan. So that they came from there. It also says they came way up here, the northwest, Tyre and Sidon. That is about another 50 miles north of Capernaum, northwest. And so all to say this, people came from everywhere to see the Savior. Because, think about it, why wouldn't they? For many of them, this was the only time, the first time, and perhaps the only time that they would have known it, they might have had a chance of getting healed. They didn't have the hospitals like we have now that can do a lot of different things. A lot of people just never recovered from sicknesses and diseases. And so here was a chance to be healed by this miracle worker. So they came. They came from all over. Not just important as that is the geographic size of this, but also I want you to think about the, the religious aspect of this. Because we know that, of course, that the area there around Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, well, that was all Jewish area. Idumea, though, and the Transjordan, that was a mixture of Jewish and non-Jews. And then way up there in the northwest, Tyre and Sidon, that was completely Gentile regions. So all to say this, neither distance nor religion kept people from bringing the sick and the diseased to be healed. And again, think of the hope that people for the first time in their lives, for many of them, finally had some hope. If I can just get to where this miracle worker is, if I can just get close enough to touch him, 
I might be healed. I might be able to start to lead a normal life. And so the people came. They were so anxious, though, and I think this is somewhat understandable. They were so anxious to be healed that it actually became dangerous for Jesus. Verse 9, there it says, that lest they crush him. Well, that was not just hyperbole. We read that and think, oh, yeah, they're kind of pushing in tight, right? The word that is used there, that Mark uses, that word to crush, literally means to jostle, to press hard upon, to crowd in hard against. They were pushing, pushing their way, forcing their way to get to Jesus because they felt like if they could just get there and touch him, they might be healed. Think with me. Think Black Friday sales before the advent of online shopping. Any of you ever do Black Friday shopping? Oh, a few. Okay. Yeah. I, I praise God I never, I never did it. I'm a coward. I just never did it. I saw it on TV and that scared me enough <laughs> that I thought I'm never doing it. There is no deal worth the torture of all of that. But, but we've seen that. Right? It's like the people are crowded. They're waiting for the doors to open. And as soon as the doors finally open, all sense of, I would say, all sense of common decency and respect for other people, it just flies out the window. Or I guess in that case, it flies out the door. Right? Because as soon as those doors open, it's like its own version of insanity. People knocking others down and even stepping on on them if need be because they had to get to that big item purchase sale before someone else could get there. I think that's kind of what it was like on the Sea of Galilee along the seashore there. So Jesus, as we read here, he had a backup plan. (laughs) He was always thinking, I love this. He had a backup plan. He had the disciples, he had them have a boat out there into the water just in case he needed it so he could go into the boat and escape from the crowd so he would not be crushed by them. Now, whether or not he used it, we don't know. It doesn't really tell us in this here, but we do know this. The people came and he healed many, many people which I think speaks not only to his power, but also to his compassion. That even though the people were just forcing and pushing against him to try to be the ones to get healed, he healed. Interesting, though, that not everyone present was of human origin. That's point number two, the silenced cries of demons. Look at verses 11 And 12, as I read them, please. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, we've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. Open demonic activity was at a super high level during Jesus' ministry on earth. Satan and his minions, they knew what was at stake when the Son of God took on human flesh. And so while they were unable to overcome Jesus, they boldly and they aggressively did everything they could to harm people. And as a result of that, now yes, many, many, many people came to Jesus because they had physical uh, sickness and disease and illnesses. But there were also 
people who came who were possessed by demons. It's a lot of oppression, a lot of possession going on during this time of Jesus' ministry on earth. There's two things that I find really incredibly interesting, I think, just in those two verses that we just read. A is this. The demons knew exactly who Jesus was. In stark contrast to the religious leaders who denied his deity. Remember two weeks ago, not only did they deny it, they began trying to come up with a plan to stop him. But in contrast to those leaders who denied who Jesus was, the demons knew very clearly that he was the Son of God, and therefore they couldn't help but fall down. I like that. Notice that. They had to fall down. They could not help themselves. But they also then declared who he was. Their theology, if we can call it that, it was spot on. While the religious leaders, the ones who should have known better, while they denied the truth of Jesus' claim that he was indeed the Messiah, he was indeed God in human flesh, the demons knew it and they acknowledged it. Second thing I think is really interesting in this is that the demons had to obey Jesus' command. Where it says here, Mark says that they, he strictly ordered, that's a very harsh, very strong command in Greek. In fact, it means to severely rebuke or to reproach. And here's what I find interesting. It carries the idea of a penalty for failure to obey. So they did not have a choice here. When Jesus commanded the unclean spirits to be silent, they were silent. They could not help themselves. Jesus refused to let the demonic world be testifiers of who he truly was. And again, I don't know about you, but I'm just struck over and over again with the irony of this situation. The religious leaders, right? They're the ones who knew the Old Testament. They're the ones who had been studying it their whole lives. They were the ones who were seeing the Old Testament prophecies actually come to life right before them, their eyes, because Jesus was indeed fulfilling those prophecies. They should have shouted his praises from the housetops. Here is our long-awaited Messiah. Finally, God has come. Instead, they stubbornly refused to do so and actually plotted his demise. And then you have the demons. The very personification of evil and wickedness. They spoke the truth that he was indeed the very Son of God. But, of course, Jesus neither wanted nor needed their proclamation of who he was. Because their proclamation was not made out of worship or praise for who he was. It was probably made out of fear and perhaps even mockery. But I love the power of our Savior. This Savior who had so much compassion that he allowed the masses of people to come and even push against him because he was healing them. The same Savior who had all of that also had the power to silence them just by commanding them. That's the greatness of our Savior. Third thing I want us to see today is the choosing and calling of the twelve. Let me just read verse 13 as you follow along. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and 
called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, how much time taking place between verses 12 and 13, how much time took place with this whole thing of the people pushing against Jesus? We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. But that's not really the important part of this. What is so important is what Jesus did after that crowded beach scene. Because he now, you notice this, he isolates himself from the crowd. He leaves where the masses are. Had he healed them all? I don't know, perhaps. But we know he'd healed many of them, and he leaves now the masses there along the seashore, and he goes up to the mountain. Luke, in his gospel account, gives us a little bit added insight. Something We talked about how Mark is brief, right? He doesn't go into a lot of different details. He gives us a lot of significant things, but Luke is a little bit more wordy. So Luke gives us something. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, is in, in the same, describing the same event, says, In these days he went up to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. I love the fact that before choosing the twelve, that select group of men who would spend so much time with him during those, these next three years, Jesus spent time in prayer with his Father. Oh, how we would benefit if we spent long hours in prayer before making big decisions, if we took time and we separated ourselves from the busyness and separated ourselves from people and and all of the different things that might draw us away, if we just spent time with our Father, drawing close to Him, if we spent time just asking and pleading for Him to give us guidance and wisdom as we try to determine what we should do, what we think His will should be. Think of it this way. If the Son of God, the second person of the divine and holy Trinity, if He felt it was necessary to spend time in prayer before making a big decision, (laughs) how much more should we How much more should we? I'm reminded of James chapter 1, verse 5. James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We are handicapping ourselves when we try to make decisions just based on what we think is the best decision and forsaking spending time with our Father in heaven. It really does handicap us. Jesus understood the importance. I love the fact that he separated himself from the crowd, but he went up on the mountain, not just to be away from them, but because he wanted to spend time with his father in prayer. Now, notice in verse 13 here, it says that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. This is really important. The initiative was not on the 12 disciples slash apostles. The the initiative was entirely, completely, 100% Jesus's. He is the one who determined whom he was going to call. And I think that that's really, really important. Now, listen to what the 
this is what the, the pillar New Testament commentary says about this. The Greek is emphatic. The sense is that he summoned those whom he willed. Jesus determines the call. <laughs> Disciples do not decide to follow Jesus and do him a favor in so doing. Oh man, if we just understood that better, right? It says, rather, his call supersedes their wills. Jesus called those whom he desired to be with him. Now, let's keep reading. Verses 14, uh, let me read all the way through 19. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. I want you to just notice, Mark, remember we talked that Mark, that Mark is writing to Gentiles? So often Mark will have to translate the meaning of a Hebrew or Aramaic word. He does that for us here. Continuing on, verse 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So I think that this is really, really important. Again, Jesus spent time in prayer before choosing, before calling these 12 men. But why just 12 men? Why did he narrow it down to 12? Well, I think, I think that you, <laughs> you can't help but think about anything dealing with the Jews at that time, since the Old Testament, right? Since the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 was a very significant number of completion for the Jews. And even though, even though most of the Jews in Jesus' day, they had no clue as to what their original tribe was that they had descended from, still, every Jew, they knew that 12 was a very significant number, we won't spend more time on that, but, but let me ask this question. I want you to think about this with me. Why these 12 men? Was it because they were the cream of the crop? Was it because they were so spiritually mature? Was it because they were so special and talented that Jesus just could not have fulfilled his ministry without them? Let me see. I asked three questions. No. No, and no. There were none of those. Not at all, right? Just think with me here. Peter, Mr. Let me charge full speed ahead before thinking, right? James and John, who <laughs> he called them sons of thunder, well, in Luke chapter 9, talks about this time that they wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume some Samaritans because they refused to believe Jesus. Yeah, they were pretty... High-maintenance guys, I'm just going to say that. Think of Matthew. Matthew, who had been a hated and despised tax collector. Thomas, <laughs> he was the one who refused to believe in the risen Christ until he could actually touch his wounds. Simon, the zealot, he had, before becoming a follower of Christ, he had committed his life to overturning Roman rule. Or, and Judas, of course, we know his story, the one who would ultimately betray Jesus. No, no. Jesus didn't choose these men because they were 
the best of the best. He didn't choose these men because they were special. This is what I think is so powerful. These men became special because Jesus chose them. They were just as ordinary and they were just as flawed as you and I are. And yet, because of what Jesus did and through them, they literally changed the world. If you wonder about that, take some time this week and read through the book of Acts. You will see how the kingdom of Christ, Christianity, grew and grew, starting with these men. I thought this was so interesting. I came across this. It's a book called Quiet Talks on Service, written by S.D. Gordon. And he writes of this imaginary conversation upon Jesus' return to heaven after his ascension. It goes like this. So, As the angel Gabriel greets Jesus, he asks, Master, you died for the world, did you not? To which, Jesus, which the Lord replies, yes. You must have suffered much, the angel says. And again, Jesus answers, yes. Do they all know that you died for them? Gabriel continues, no. Only a few in Palestine know about it so far. Jesus says, well then, what is your plan for telling the rest of the world that you shed your blood for them? Jesus responds, well, I asked Peter and James and John and Andrew and a few others if they would make it the business of their lives to tell others. And then the ones that they could tell, excuse me, and then the ones that they tell could tell others. And they, in turn, could tell still others. And finally, it would reach the farthest corner of the earth and all would know the thrill and power of the gospel. But suppose Peter failed. And suppose after a while, John doesn't tell anyone. And what if James and Andrew are ashamed or afraid? Then what? Gabriel asked. I have no other plans, Jesus answered. I am counting entirely on them. I love that story, imaginary though it might be. I love it because it conveys the truth. It conveys the truth that Jesus' plan to reach the world with the gospel is for those who have been saved to share it with those who haven't. He didn't have a plan B. He didn't need a plan B. He calls us just as he called those 12 to share the truth of the gospel message with the world that needs it. What an incredible privilege. He doesn't need us. We know that, right? He doesn't really need us. But he calls us, he chose us to be his followers so that we can then tell others and they can tell others. And it just keeps going and going, going throughout the centuries until the return of Jesus Christ to earth. He calls us to share the wonderful news of salvation, that news that he died for our sins. And because he died, we can be saved by grace through faith in him alone. It is nothing that any of us deserves And it is nothing that any of us can earn. Salvation is freely given by Jesus to all who willingly accept his gift. And so we 
are called to share the good news of the gospel. J.C. Ryle was a 19th century pastor. I love what he wrote. He said, I desire above all things to magnify the riches of God's love to sinners. I long to tell all mankind what a wealth of mercy and loving kindness there is laid up in God's heart for all who will seek it. What if that was our desire too? What if our response to Jesus' calling and choosing of us was to tell anyone and everyone who would listen about the riches of God's love to sinners? I think that's a a challenge for us from this passage. It's 12 apostles. They weren't special. Not until Jesus did something special in them. You and I aren't special. Not until Jesus does something special in us. And he has given us this incredible privilege to be able to share with others the good news of Jesus coming to earth. Now, I don't know about you guys. Some of you are maybe have already got your resolutions in line for the year ahead. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm not doing any more resolutions because I always fail. I don't know where you're on, are on any of that, but here's just something to think about. What if we all made one of our resolutions to be able to share the gospel with whoever God allows us the opportunity? God used 12 men to change the world, and he is still using his people. I think that would be a pretty good resolution. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. There's so much we could have talked about, how you call us, how you've chosen us, how we are yours. But God, oh, I want us instead to really just understand the privilege and yet the responsibility you have given us Because we are also called and chosen, we also have the task before us to share with other people. Would you give us opportunities in the year ahead to do that? Would you help us, Lord, in our conversations to always be anxious to share the rich mercies of your grace? Give us the boldness to do it. Fill us with the Spirit and enable us to do it well. Not for our own sense of feeling useful, but God, because of the fact that you use your people to bring more people into your kingdom. Thank you, in Jesus' name.